Just because you're sober doesn't mean life gets easy, but that's okay. It's okay. Life doesn't have to be easy. If life was easy, it wouldn't be fulfilling. We wouldn't see growth. We have to understand that it's okay for things to be hard. It's okay to experience discomfort. Feel the feelings, but develop the tools to rise above them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Flow Over Fear podcast, where it is our mission to help you to rise above fear and realize your ultimate potential in leadership and life. I'm your host, Adam Hill, and it is my goal to share with you the human side of high performance. My guests share their experience with fear, anxiety, struggle, challenge, and most importantly, despite all of it, how they rose above it to achieve incredible results. So if you're ready to rise up, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Flow Over Fear and a very special episode of Flow Over Fear. Uh, It's kind of like one of those after school programs like Facts of Life where Tootie finds a plastic bag of some funny stuff on the ground and they make a whole episode about it, right? Uh, Well, uh, I don't know if that really happened in Facts of Life, by the way, but you get my drift and there's no funny stuff or plastic bags in this episode. In fact, it's quite the opposite, but uh, you'll notice that I am alone today. I do not have a guest. And the reason I do not have a guest is because I want to share about a subject that is very near and dear to me. Uh, And it's because a very important anniversary has just passed for me, and that was 11 years of sobriety. And so in thinking about and reflecting on the last decade or more than a decade of sobriety in my life, I was thinking about the lessons I learned. And because there are so many people, so many people that suffer from substance abuse, or mental health issues, and things of that nature in this world, I, I, in, in the effort of at least wanting to be of some value, I wanted to share some of the lessons that I've learned uh, in sobriety. And so the purpose of this episode is to share 11 lessons from 11 years of sobriety with you all, understanding that everybody has their own journey. This is my journey. Somebody else's journey might be much different. And it's important to acknowledge that because, you know, what works for me may not be the best approach for everybody, but the importance of being open-minded and willing and, and able to look at the options that, that work for other people, that's one of the keys to moving in the direction that best works for, for somebody else. But throughout this process, I want everybody to know, and I I want to provide this disclaimer that I am not offering any medical advice here. I'm not offering any kind of advice, advice promoting any kind of treatment option. I am, however, just sharing my experience, strength, and hope. I would love for everybody to to hear it and take it to heart and to really be critical in their own minds about what, you know, what approach works best for them and seek help. If you're having problems, know that there are communities of support out there. If you're struggling with addiction, with alcoholism, with mental health issues, with depression or anything like that, reach out for help because the one common theme that works amidst all of these treatment programs, amidst everything related to this is community is support. 
as a mechanism for help. So lean into that support in whatever way is best for you. So kind of preempting this with you know the, the 11 lessons that I've learned, I want to kind of share about how I got into uh, alcoholism a little bit. Uh, because that's another important aspect. That's another way that many people have have different stories. And I just want to share mine. Mine uh, started, I didn't have a childhood that was surrounded by alcoholism. I didn't really know much about alcoholism or addiction or those kinds of things when I was growing up. You know, you, you hear a lot of stories about people that that, you know, grew up in an alcoholic household and that's how it kind of started for them, or they they grew up at a young age and they were exposed to alcohol and or, or drugs in some way at a young age. That never happened to me. I had a life that was very very free and and mercifully free from any of that kind of 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 trauma. I didn't have any alcoholic family members that I knew of that I knew well, and I didn't even know it was really a part of our family. Um, and. Uh, so my first experiences with alcohol didn't really come until my late teens when I, when I pretty much just followed the same tradition that every late teenage kid does when they go to college. And that is drink at parties. Uh, and I don't want to generalize and make lump everybody into that, but uh, you know, I, it is fair to say that, that many, many kids do start to drink there. And so there was nothing really abnormal about it at that point. The only abnormality with me was that growing up, I had this budding worry, this, this dormant anxiety that I didn't know what it was. I was just constantly worried all the time. I was constantly feeling that anxiety. But because we were more focused in, in the school system, talking about D.A.R.E. and keeping kids off drugs, though we didn't talk about mental health. We didn't talk about depression. We didn't talk about anxiety. So those kinds of things were were absent to me. I didn't, I didn't know what mental health issues were. And, and the things that I did know of were, well, you, you go into a, a psych ward if you're, if you're super, super crazy, right? There wasn't like this mental health issue that, 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 that and, and the, the openness that we have about it now. Uh, so that worry, that anxiety, I just kept it to myself primarily because it was it would have been seen as weird and it made me look like I was kind of, uh, not a uh, normal person. So keeping that to myself, um, one of the things that I, that I recognized really quickly when I got into college, um, and when I got into college, by the way, I started to experience more panic attacks and the anxiety took a greater hold on me. And there was a bigger depression because there was such a change in environment. And I began to lose control over a lot more things. I began to lose control over my uh, my ability to do schoolwork and keep up. I began to lose control over you know my identity of what who I was at that time, and all of those things piled on and led to these massive panic attacks. Though at that time, again, I didn't know what they were. I just legitimately thought uh, that uh, that that I had cancer or or whatever the panic was rooted in. It was it was often rooted in some health issue. And, uh, and, and that led me to just feeling this immense panic, immense anxiety. And there was one thing that really helped with that. When I drank, I found that that anxiety went away. It dissolved. The alcohol was an elixir that dissolved the anxiety and made it go completely away. 
of course, until the next morning when I would wake up hungover and, uh, uh, you know, later in my drinking career, uh, having blacked out the anxiety would come back stronger, but that would only encourage me, especially after losing control over my ability to stop drinking, that would only reinforce the idea that drinking would help me get out of that. So I continued to drink uh, well into my 20s, well beyond college. And because I was able to graduate from college, because I was able to hold a job, because I was able to function as a human, as an adult, uh, I was able to you know, convince myself that it wasn't as much of a problem as I thought. And that's one of the great lies we can tell ourselves in this and really, really believe it, by the way, is alcoholics and addicts, for the most part, they lose control over their ability to discern what is, what is right and wrong and what, what is reality on that sense. And for me, this behavior I could justify as normal because it felt normal to me and it was helping me even though in deep rooted in my soul, I knew it wasn't normal and I knew it wasn't right. And, you know, I'd constantly get uh, uh, told by, you know, people in my immediate family that it wasn't right. But that it's, it continued to take its hold on, on me. And, and, and I feel like I lost complete control over alcohol as I continued to drink it and my life. And, you know, that all, all came to a head when I did something that I told myself that I would never, ever do because um, I hated these type of people so much that I got into a car and I drove drunk in a blackout. And when I was sitting in a jail cell, um, which I, I, you know, I, I go through this story in much more detail um, in, in my book, but, but just to kind of summarize it here as I was sitting in that jail cell, I knew I had a choice because I knew I had lost complete control over my life. And now I wasn't, I wasn't just a, a danger to myself. I was a danger to others. And that was, you know, what was the powerful, the, the powerful thing that just broke my heart and my soul. And so my, the, the decision point that I had to make it that in that jail cell was either I could, either I could end my life or I could really lean into help and do whatever I was told in Alcoholics Anonymous. I chose to go into Alcoholics Anonymous because that's what I knew. And I knew that that was a program that had worked for people that, you know, classified as alcoholics. And at that time, that was in that jail cell. That was the first time I really, really admitted deep down in my soul that I was an alcoholic. And that's was my journey to sobriety. And ever since that moment coming out of that jail cell and walking into a room of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't picked up a drink since. I have made amends for the things that have, that, that have harmed others and harmed me and, and the fears that have have engulfed me. I've made peace with that. And I've made, I've tried to be in service to others who have been challenged by the same issue. And those last 11 years since that date of walking out of that jail cell have been a miracle. They haven't been perfect. They haven't been all wonderful. There has been tremendous pain in those 11 years. 
there has been uh, very difficult times for me, but I wouldn't trade them. And they were been, they've been the most amazing 11 years that I could imagine. Um, I, and I, and I say all this to really for those that are still struggling just to show that there is hope that, um, that amidst all of the, all of the pain, all of the feelings of hopelessness, that there is hope, um, and there is a way, there is a path forward to sobriety. And that kind of leads into some of the 11 lessons that I've learned in these 11 years of sobriety. That the first one has to do with hope. That even in the midst of hopelessness, there is hope. When I was sitting in that jail cell, I felt 100% hopeless. I had done something that I never thought that I would do. I had harmed other people in a way that I had never expected. I had only thought of that to, up to that point that I was harming myself and now I was harming others. And I felt like I was hopeless in that case because I could not control, I could not stop drinking. But looking back on that feeling I had when I was sitting in that jail cell, looking back on the how I, how I felt, I remember just feeling that that there was nothing that was going to make this that 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 was going to come that was good out of this and yet you know not even a year later just from doing the work good started coming from it that hope won the day because i leaned into hope i leaned into the community i le- i leaned into alcoholics anonymous i leaned into sobriety and that wasn't easy. It was not an easy process, but it was uh, the healing process that I needed to actually bring that miracle to life. So when you're feeling like you're in the midst of hopelessness, regardless of what it is, I've, ha- I've even had those feelings in sobriety that there is no possibility I could find my way out of this particular situation. No, that's the anxiety talking. That's my brain talking. That's not the reality that the worst case is not always what's going on and that that's not always the reality. The worst case is often just in our head, right? So always remember that, you know, just take a breath and lean into hope. And the second thing, the second lesson that I've learned uh, from early in sobriety, and this was even, you know, just kind of going back on my experiences I was drinking. But the second thing I would say is that you have to want it. You have to want sobriety deeply. And you not only, willingness truly is the key. That is one of the the mantras in in program speak is that willingness is key. And it it really is. Um, And the the willingness can't just be, uh, just can't be lip service. You can't just say it. Because anybody could say it, but you have to truly want it. That desire has to be stronger than the desire to drink and much stronger. And I know that may be discouraging to, to some out there to say, well, but what if I don't want it? Well, that's where you really have to do and you really have to do a, ser- a soul searching inventory of, of, you know, what your desires are in life, what your environment is, where you are, you know, what is bringing you into this ism so much that that the life of living in that addiction is more powerful than where you are now, than the, where you can be. There's an element in that lack of willingness, in that, in that strong desire to stay where you're at, 
there's there's an element of 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 wanting to of of not being happy with where you're where you're at certainly and so digging deep into why you're not happy there digging deep into where you would be happy and then knowing that there's a path from from here to there uh, that's really how, how you can get it. That, that was one of the feelings I felt when I was in my alcoholism, that I felt like the environment that I lived in when I was sober was so undesirable because it was filled with anxiety. I didn't like the place that I worked. I didn't like where I lived. Uh, all of these elements of my environment, I just wasn't happy with because everything had to be perfect. And that was part of my ism that I worked on later. But because of all of those little details, the idea of staying in that in that uh, in that terrible environment of alcoholism and addiction was more desirable to me than my actual environment, which, from outside perspectives, really wasn't all that bad. It was all up here in my mind. But the mind is a powerful place that creates our environment. How can we shift that? How can you shift that? So, shifting that gives you puts you into a desire of 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 willingness of of wanting to of of actually wanting it and that's what you need in order to get sober you have to want it in order to sustain it and if you don't want it at least lean into that sobriety one day at a time and then work on wanting it work on it uh because that is something that can change right and third we never get over alcoholism that doesn't mean that we can't stop drinking because obviously I've stopped drinking and I'm, I'm, I'm sober and I have no desire to drink, but we don't get over the ism. We don't get out over alcoholism. If I pick up another drink today, I am right back where I started. And I recognize that every single day that that's part of the ism that I have. So I don't get over alcoholism, but you can transcend the desire to drink. Transcendence is an important word that I learned early on, and I, I, I'm a big fan of this word. And I know it has a lot of connotation into the meditation world and into like, you know, transcendental meditation, things like that. But literally, the meaning of trans, transcendence is to rise above. And so you notice I talk about rising above fear a lot. And that's because I learned early in sobriety that the way to get sustainably healthy, sustainably, uh, uh, sustainably sober is not to just get over addiction, is not to just be sober, is to transcend the desire to drink. And that means transforming the person that we are into the person that we want to be. And this gets back to even that willingness step is that if we can create an identity of a person that we want to be that's serving the world in the way that tugs at our hearts, then, you know, we are transcending our former selves, transcending that and becoming the person that we want to be. And we are, we can, in that process, transcend the desire to drink. We are creating an environment that is more empowering for us and more, uh, more, able to 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 be a a positive force for us than the environment that keeps us in that addiction after i got sober for for about that first year i spent you know wholly in that uh in that in that world of alcoholics anonymous but as all of you know beyond that i started getting into triathlon and i started really working in that i started reshaping 
who I was around this concept of a healthy lifestyle and an abundant lifestyle. And that changed, that transformed my entire life. It transformed who I was from the standpoint of my physical and mental well-being. It transformed my courage because I was rising above fear and pushing beyond my 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 perceived limitations and that was also contributing to my career and my and my financial well-being as well so that i was able to focus more on on that level of success and service in the world and that was and all of those elements combined of of transforming who i was uh helped me to transcend the desire to drink as well over the over the course of that time so you never get over alcoholism. I'm still not over alcoholism. I am an alcoholic, but I have transcended that desire to drink. Number four, there is never a better time to get sober. Now, this goes back to all of those times where when I was drinking and I was and, and I would wake up full of anxiety and full of fear and hung over and saying to myself, I'm never going to drink again. Have you ever felt that way? I'm sure I've, I've heard that so many times with people saying, I'm never going to drink again when uh, after waking up uh, hungover. But having woken up like that and say, saying that, I, you know, I would go back to this idea that, well, now's right, not the right time because I have all these things going on. I don't have time. I'm busy with work. I can't, you know, I can't give up. I can't. I can't step away from my family. I've got to be there for my family. So I can't go into a program. So maybe now is not the right time. Maybe I'll wait till everything settles down a bit. Have you ever said that? I'll wait till everything settles down a bit before I make this major life change. But I will tell you that if, if you keep living into that concept and things keep getting worse as you continue down the addiction path, well, for me, as it continued to get worse down that addiction path, I began to do things that I never thought that I would do, including driving drunk. And that was the point, that worst point in my life, that rock bottom, where I, I, I uh, had the initiative to say, now, now is the time. And, uh, um, but I'll say to anyone else that's thinking that there's never a better time or there's, there might be a better time down the line, there's never a better time because it only gets worse. And then number five, it's just because you're sober, that doesn't mean that life gets easy. Just because you're sober doesn't mean that life gets easy, but it does get better. And that's something that my sponsor told me early on that really, really stuck with me. It doesn't get easier, but it gets better. I have been through some of the most difficult times of my life with, through, through, within sobriety within the last 11 years. I have, um, I have lost a job. I have have gone through really difficult times in my business uh, where, you know, we, we had to face some very difficult decisions. I've, um, you know, I've, I've had significant health issues with some family members that have been very, very difficult. And through those challenging times, I've had that sense of, of feeling hopeless. But the way that I'm able to handle that now because I've transcended the desire to drink, because I'm sober, I'm able to show up in the world and I'm able to show up in those times and rise above them and ultimately work through them because those challenges offer opportunities to grow 
now. Now I can look at those as opportunities instead of challenges, opportunities to grow. Because we build resilience and we build, we build anti-fragility through those challenging times if we're able to you know, work through them in such, a, in, such a, in such a way. That is how I've been able to understand that we can rise above our fears. We don't have to fight it. The, the, the aspect of actually living in, in the ism is an act of fighting against our fears and fighting again against our, our, our vices or, or our, our demons. But when we can rise above it and start to, start to even embrace that fear in some, in some aspects, in many aspects, then we can actually start to grow and start to achieve more. And we can transcend even more of that former self that we were and we experience greater flow. That's how that works. So just because you're sober doesn't mean life gets easy, but that's okay. It's okay. Life doesn't have to be easy. If life was easy, it, it, it wouldn't be fulfilling. We wouldn't see growth. We have to understand that it's okay for things to be hard. It's okay to experience discomfort. Feel the feelings, but develop the tools to rise above them so that they don't have to consume you. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Hey, everyone, if you're listening to this show and you want to rise above fear and achieve greater flow in your life, which of course translates into better results in business, better health, a more fulfilling lifestyle, and much, much more, and who doesn't, right? Well, then schedule your free strategy call with me today. Simply go to www.adamcliffordhill.com coaching and click on the link to start your journey to your high flow life. And number six, there is a tremendous power in a like-minded community. And this was my first discovery in Alcoholics Anonymous, because prior to that point, I felt like I had to do everything alone. I grew up with that mindset of thinking, well, this is just happening to me. This, this anxiety, this, this fear, all of this stuff. So I have to tackle it alone. I don't want to tell it to anybody because they would laugh me out of the room or they would, they would think I was crazy. Or if I tell people that I'm an alcoholic, that's going to ruin my life or it's going to ruin my relationships or it's going to ruin these things. But the reality is leaning into a, a safe and like-minded community for me, that was AA early on in sobriety. That was the key to getting sober, was, was recognizing that there were other people like me and depending on those people to help me through those difficult times. And as I grew uh, beyond uh, and be, as I grew through that sobriety and as I, as I grew through that, I found new communities to help me in other ways. And through triathlon, triathlon clubs were a powerful source of inspiration and, and community for me at the, at, during that time. And they can be a powerful community for you as well. Uh, getting into other things now with on the business side, like GoBundance or, or Brand Builders Group, those kinds of communities that help us to grow, to help, that help one another, that work together to become better versions of ourselves. That's how community can help us. And I learned about that community through sobriety, through that first year of sobriety. There's so much power in community. And if there's, if there's one thing that you take from this, it's that, and if there's one first step that you can, you can find to getting help on anything, lean into a community, lean into that like-minded community of support. 
because it can save your life. And then in addition to having tremendous power and community, number seven speaks to the tremendous power that we could find in frameworks. Now, what is a framework? A framework is basically a series of steps or a series of tools that we can use to achieve something. And early on in, in my sobriety, when, when I didn't know how to do it, well, A, leaning into the community was the first important step because now I was surrounded by people that had what I wanted. I had mentors. I had mentorships. I had a sponsor. I, I, I rose up to the level of my fear to face that fear and find people that I could surround myself with. But in addition to that, there was just a series of steps that I had to follow, a simple series of steps to follow to achieve that goal of getting sober and staying sober. And it was the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and those 12 steps are pretty prominent in many, many recovery programs. Uh, first, admitting our powerlessness and you know, then going through the successive steps um, to, to achieve what we want to do on a daily basis to get sober. And so going through that, that framework and stepping into the room and admitting that I was powerless over alcohol, I took that very simple first step. Um, and then, you know, coming to believe that there's a, a power greater than myself that could lead me to sanity, you know, finding those, those kind of, just taking those additional steps and knowing that it's just one step at a time. That's where the power of the framework came in to play. Frameworks have existed also in, in many of the other, um, the other ways that I've wanted to achieve things, not even, not just in sobriety, but even in triathlon, there's a framework. There's a framework of how we train over the macro cycle, right? There's the base building phase. Then there's the peak phase. Then there's the, uh, then there's the taper phase. That's simply a framework of how we, how we train. So whenever you're looking to, to achieve something or come out of something that's, that's challenging, look for a series of steps that you can use that could be a framework to get you through to achieve what you want to get to. And then number eight is just the amount, just the time management, time mastery has been an important element of this kind of thing. Just simply the amount of stuff that I can get done now in sobriety is enormous. I used to say when I was, when I was drinking that I didn't have time to go get sober because I, I had all this stuff to do. I had to work. I had to take care of family. I had to do all of these things. I had all, all of these obligations. Oh, but sure enough, after 5 p.m., I'm, uh, I'm drinking some wine and doing all of that stuff, right? I mean, you can, you can relate. But the idea of, of taking out that element, taking out the alcohol, changed my time completely. Because now I woke up with more energy. And more energy, and really that's what time is. Time is just a product of energy and efficiency. And if you increase either energy or efficiency, you increase the amount of time you have. And so by increasing, uh, by increasing my energy, I immediately had more time because I was thinking clearer. I, had, I, I, wasn't, uh, I was able to wake up earlier. I, was, I wasn't waking up in a fog. I was more productive. I was, uh, my, my, my mood, my optimism, my attitude was better once I came out of that fog. And so I was able to accomplish more. So even though I was throwing in meetings every single day, that wasn't taking away from my time with my family or wasn't taking away from my time with work. I was getting more done. So people often wonder today how I'm able to get 
so much done. I mean, getting, getting into training for an Ironman, it's a lot of time. You know, doing things like uh, running a business is a lot of time. Starting a business is a lot of time. Doing a podcast takes a lot of time. And I do get that question a lot of how do you do so much? Well, one of the main reasons is I spent a decade, more, more, than, more than a decade of my life drinking heavily for most of my time, for a lot of my time, and still pushing to try to accomplish a lot during that, during that period. Um, and having frustration and having all of these obstacles in my, in my way. Once I removed that primary obstacle of, of drinking, my time just opened up and I was able to channel that obsessive focus in a more structured way. And again, going back to frameworks, create frameworks around how we can achieve more in the time that we have. That's one of the most profound things. If, you know, even if, even if drinking isn't necessarily, or, or any other vices, even if they're not necessarily a significant problem for you, or if you don't feel like they're a significant problem, if you find yourself asking the question or, or, or saying, I don't have time, then that is a simple way to increase your time and energy is to cut out anything that, that you're doing on the excess that isn't serving you back. Now, number nine, and this is a very, very personal one. So take this with a grain of salt because anonymity is very, very important. Uh, anonymity is where we, you know, where we keep it, keep these things secret to ourselves and in in an entrusted group of people. And of course, anonymous is the second word in Alcoholics Anonymous. So it's a key tenant in that, in, in that program. Um, for me, however, as, as, as I went through sobriety, anonymity was very important to me early on. You know, I, I was very vulnerable, very fragile. I was very broken. I was a broken person coming into sobriety. And as I went through that healing process, the anonymity, the bandage of anonymity was very important to me. Um, I was able to recover with a trusted group of people and really lean into that openly and honestly without fear that it would get into the open and damage my life. But as I kind of went through after a few years in sobriety, one of the things that I recognized that at least for me, I didn't want that anonymity to become a crutch. I didn't want it to be something that I leaned into for comfort. Um, and I knew that because there were more people suffering in the world, um, just outside of, even outside of AA, I, I decided to be more open with my story because from the standpoint of others needing to, needing to hear it, Yes, more people I think need to hear needed to hear it, and I was willing to tell my story. I was willing to be open about it because I thought it could help people. But also, you know, from a selfish standpoint, being open with my story reinforces sobriety within my identity. It reinforces it as part of who I am if I'm open about it, and it reinforces it as a point of accountability. It has helped me to even further transcend my desire to drink and transcend uh, the ism part of my alcoholism so that I, I still have more of that armor of sobriety on me. And so tell, telling my story openly helps me to stay accountable and it helps me to help people. 
It's what I would consider the 13th step in my opinion, but it's an optional 13th step because I, I recognize that for many people, anonymity is very, very important, even well, well into their, uh, their time in sobriety. So number 10 is the anxiety piece. The very thing that I was trying to escape, it actually could be a superpower once I stopped fighting it. And this is kind of the baseline of, of, of what I try to show people now is that early on in my, uh, well, when I was drinking, I was fighting against anxiety. I was fighting fear because I was constantly feeling it. And every time I felt it, I wanted to fight it by suppressing it, by drinking myself into oblivion so that I wasn't feeling it. And so I would fight it, I would flee from it and, and, and try to get away from it, but it would stay there, it would keep pressing harder. Every morning I'd wake up and it was there, it was there more intensely. Uh, and I was fighting it and I couldn't win. When I got into sobriety, I rose up to the level to face my fears. By facing it, what I mean is I, I, I rose up to acknowledge that fear is a thing. When I took the fourth step inventory during the, my 12-step process, I remember looking at, at, a, at a blank page that had the, the word on the top that said fears on it. And I was supposed to acknowledge and write down my fears, my biggest fears. And that was a bit trick. That was tough for me because I had a lot of fears. I had a lot. And um, you know, one of the fears that I put down was that I was afraid of fear. I was afraid of experiencing it. And as, as, as that was probably the most profound fear that I was able to acknowledge because I, that was one of the first times that I named fear as something I was afraid of, that I just didn't want to feel the feeling. I didn't want to feel it. But now just in that sense of when we rise up to face our fears, especially in, in the nature of addiction or, or alcoholism or things like that, when we rise up to face our fear, we start to heal. You know, we start to we start to find that healing. We recognize that fear and anxiety, they don't have to be enemies. Yes, they can be intense. They can be it, it can be painful, but it's not going to hurt us. We only hurt ourselves because of them. So rising up to face it, I started that healing process that was, you know, there's a lot more to that than it to just that. I mean, there's there's you know, there was a year of healing in there. There was many, and and that healing still continues. And I still feel fear very intensely. And it's sometimes it's very painful, but I can also recognize now and, and put myself in the position that it's okay to feel it. It's again, as we go, as, as I restate, it's okay to feel the feelings. It's okay to be uncomfortable. That part's not going to hurt us. Fear and anxiety aren't going to hurt us. It's just asking the questions and it's, it's acknowledging it as part of the human experience. And that's what I did with that. And then the second part to, to making it a superpower is we don't just have to rise up to face it, which is, which is hugely important. That healing part is important. We can't skip over that. But we can also rise up to embrace it. And this is a more challenging step, yes. But once we can conquer this element, we open ourselves up to an unlimited amount of abundance in this life. And this is what I want to scream from the rooftops, y'all, because uh, did I just say y'all? Oh, my gosh. I have to take a break from that. That's that's terrible. But <laughs> uh, that one threw me off for a loop. I, I apologize about that. Should I say gang or folks? How about that? Are those any better? Anyway, I digress. 
But that, this is what I want to shout from the rooftops, gang. I want to shout from the rooftops that if you can rise above fear and learn to embrace it and learn to look at it as a signal to when we're pushing up against our comfort zone, that we will see that just beyond it, there's growth there. And we don't need to make a giant swan dive over that fear uh, and, and, and put ourselves way outside of our comfort zones. We can just push ourselves 1% beyond it. And that's where growth comes from. And if we can do that consistently, the experience of fear shifts in our world because we're using it as a friend. We're dancing with it. We're embracing fear and we're starting to dance with it. When we embrace fear and we start to dance with it, we start to change our relationship with it so that our whole experience with it changes for the better. So just remember, if you can treat fear as a signal, as an uncomfortable signal, albeit, but, but if we could treat it as a signal to push past our comfort zone just a little bit, we can start to grow from it. We can change our relationship with it. That's all fear is trying to tell us in a lot of ways. Yes, it's there to tell us when we're experiencing danger and to stay away from that danger. It's important to, uh, uh, to discern that. But it's also important to look at it when it's telling you, when it's challenging you, when it's saying, hey, there's something there that you should probably go after. You should probably just push a little bit more to go after it. Um, we, should, we should lean into that because that will change your relationship with fear. And finally, the last one, number 11, is that sobriety is an ongoing journey. And this is one of the first things they tell you in a program of recovery, in anything, in any program really that is meant for improvement, that it's just one step at a time. How do we experience fear? How do we experience anxiety? A lot of times that anxiety and fear is, is experienced as massive overwhelm. I got to do all of this stuff. I have so much to do. It's everything is weighing down on me. I have to, I, 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 I can't get my arms around everything. But if we take those pieces down, we chunk them down into the very, very next step. The next indicated step. That's all we need to think about it one step at a time, one step, just this moment right now, in this very moment, don't drink. That's really as simple as, as the program of sobriety is in this very moment right now, don't drink. Your mind may be screaming at you. It may be screaming. I've got to, I got to do this. I got to do that. But yeah, but no, no, just right now. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. If you could take that element of control, at the present time. That's the success over and over again. And that's not an easy path. It's, it's not easy to look at things one step at a time in this very moment, because our minds are really conditioned to think into the future. You know, I still do that to this day very much, very often to my detriment. But as long as we're aware of it, as long as we can bring ourselves back to the present, then we can, we can acknowledge that the only place that we have control is right now in this very moment. And in this very moment, I'm going to take control over that and I'm not going to drink. And that's what, for a while, that's what I had to do. Every single moment was tell myself in this moment, I'm not going to drink to the point where I don't really have to think about it very much anymore. And when it pops in my head and I say, nope, that's not, that's not happening right now. 
that's where I go to. And that's kind of the root of, of transcending the ism. You know, it's, it's, it becomes less this whole journey of sobriety, this whole journey of sobriety that goes on and on. And it continues for, for me and it continues for others that are living in this program. Um, it's going to continue into this 11th year for me or into this 12th year for me. And by God's grace, I, I will, you know, be able to continue one day at a time. And it becomes less about fighting the desire to drink as we, as we transcend that desire and more, more about a living a sober life and not living in our isms because the ism is more than just the drinking. For me, it was the fear. For me, it was the anxiety. For me, it, it, it was the discomfort of my own environment, of who I was, the uncomfort in my own skin and the feeling like I wasn't enough. There was a lot of work there. And so if we could just stop the drinking for a second and, and then have the courage to face it and, and address what the root of our ism is, that's where the transcendence continues to occur. And that's an ongoing journey because stuff is always going to keep hitting us. Outside forces are going to keep coming in and, and, and picking at our brains, the, the part of our brains that, uh, that trigger our, our anxieties and our fears and our frustrations and our depressions and all of those things that's going to come from the outside. And it's a continuous journey that has no end. But here's the beautiful thing. In the beginning, I know that at the beginning of the sober journey, it feels like you're in a prison cell. It feels like, wow, I'm never going to be able to drink again. And your world feels small, or I'm never going to be able to do this again. And your world feels small because you're still overwhelmed by the ism. And that was the thing. It feels like you lost a friend. But as your world expands, as you continue to grow through sobriety, as you continue down that sobriety journey, your world expands. And as your world expands, it pushes out that desire to drink. Not so that it's not there or not so that the, that the ism isn't there, but it makes your world bigger. It makes your sobriety life bigger. It makes you realize that you weren't in a cell at all, that the prison cell was where you came from. And now you've got an open and abundant world to choose from. That's the message I wanted to share with you today. Again, I, I know that there's a lot in there. There's a lot in those 11 things, a lot, and, and those are, by the way, not very exhaustive. I could go on for hours on the lessons that I've, that I've gained from sobriety and the challenges I face therein. And I know that a lot of what I've said here might fall on, you know, might, might be, you know, controversial in terms of, you know, how people might receive the information. I understand that. Again, this is just my experience. I, I don't want this to be advice on on any any decisions you should make with your own life. I just want it to be a thought-provoking conversation with you about how my experience changed my life and how my life changed for the better. And I was able to rise above my past and the things that I've done to change who I was into who I am. And I'm pretty grateful for who I am today. I hope you can be grateful for the person that you are, and I hope you can find meaning in the in the life that you're living, and uh, and and rise above the battles that you're facing to find a more abundant life. Thanks for joining me today. I look forward to 
catching you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Flow Over Fear podcast. If you're enjoying this show, please do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. I will be so grateful if you do, and I'll look forward to bringing you more value in our next episode. I'll see you then.